Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. similar to it in recent years. It's been kind of popular to use in movies. Um, I know, and I'm kind of showing my age, uh, but uh, back in 95, uh, anybody see the movie The Usual Suspect? Anybody remember that movie with Kevin Spacey? Okay, so Kevin Spacey in that movie, he's describing one of the greatest villains of his age, and he used, uses this aphorism. And even more recently, uh, if you watched the trailer, I don't know if it was in the actual theatrical cut for the movie, but in the trailer for Batman versus Superman, Lex Luthor says something similar to this aphorism. And the statement is this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Have ever heard that statement before? Okay. It's very popular in media. Uh, it's been featured in video games and TV shows, all kinds of things. That the greatest trick the, dev- the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And the interesting thing about this aphorism is that even amongst self-proclaimed, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, it's quite true. They don't believe that the devil, that Satan, actually exists. Going as far back as 1991, uh, George Barnum, put out a book that year uh, that examined uh, Americans' religious beliefs. I've got a slide up there that has a statement from that book, um, and uh, it, it'll have statistics on there. Uh, but this, this book examined American religious beliefs, uh, and one of the questions asked was about Satan. Um, and what do you believe that he is? Do you believe that he's a real being, or do you believe that he's just a symbol of evil? Now, just among Christians, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, self-proclaimed, Over 48% of those interviewed, those surveyed, believed that the devil, or Satan, was just a symbol of evil and not a real being. 5% said they they didn't really know, so I guess you could subtract that and say 43%. 43% said the devil's just a symbol. It's not real. He's just something to personify evil so that we can aim our frustrations at something. Interesting, isn't it? Dangerous, even. That we know biblical truth from last week, from examining the text, that Satan is real. He's not a symbol. If he's just a symbol, then Jesus, when he was tempted, who's he talking to? Himself. So, he's crazy. No, the devil's not just a symbol. He's a real being. Now, If you missed last week, we talked uh, all in depth about this. You can find our notes online. You can find all the the passages of scripture that we looked at to find that he's a real being, that he's a spiritual being, and that my conclusion was that he was a being made by God that's in rebellion to God, and that led us in rebellion to God as well. We said that he's evil, certainly, but that he's not eternal, and that's a big difference. It's a very important fact for us to recognize as Christians because we know that this struggle against evil is not eternal. In Christianity, we do not believe in dualism. We believe that God is the ultimate power. He possesses all authority, and that ultimately he will win victory over the world that he made. 
that Christ will return and evil will be defeated once and for all. We don't believe in an eternal power struggle, a very Star Wars, dark side, light side of the force type of of system. We don't believe in a yin and a yang. We don't believe in a light and a dark that are constantly balancing themselves out on a cosmic scale. We believe in good and we believe that it will triumph over evil. And we started looking at his arsenal. What kind of things does he use against us? And the aphorism that you heard a moment ago is certainly a lie that Satan uses to deceive many. It's easy to win a war against someone that doesn't think you exist, isn't it? It's pretty easy to win against an opponent that doesn't believe you're real, that believes that you're just a figment of their imagination. But despite it being a lie, Satan doesn't exist, it's a very convincing one. It's probably one of the greatest lies that our enemy has ever uh, told, but not nearly as bad as the one that we're going to look at today. The one that we're going to look at today kind of, I think it's at the core of everything that Satan does. I think it's at the core of every lie that Satan tells. I think it's so centric that it goes beyond the very idea of Satan trying to convince the world that he doesn't exist. I think it, it goes beyond everything else that he tells. It's at the center and core of all of his tactics. And it's this, that God can't be trusted. I think Satan's most powerful lie that's at the core of every lie that he tells is that God can't be trusted. And last week we took a look at a story of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who lived in the Garden of Eden, a perfect and idyllic place at the beginning of the world. And Adam and Eve, they had a sweet setup, didn't they? They don't have to worry about clothes because they don't wear them. They don't have to worry about the latest fashions. They don't have to worry about the latest trends. They don't have to worry about getting sick. They don't have to worry about aging. They don't have to worry about dying. All they got to do is not eat from one tree. And what do they do? They eat from the one tree. But they don't just do it. They do it because they're following the temptation of Satan. And at the core of his lie, I think it was this, that God can't be trusted. That's when Satan shows up, right in the midst of all the good stuff. Isn't that the way he shows up in our lives a lot of times? Isn't that the way it usually seems? It's like things start going really good finally, and then Satan just seems to kick you in the teeth. Isn't that the way life feels a lot of times? That's the way it was for them. Life is going great. And then the serpent slithers up to Eve and says, Did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? Why, why would he say that unless he's not good? Unless he wants to keep you from something. He calls into question God's good intentions. He calls into question God's goodness at all. At the core of his devious question is the idea and implication that God is not really good. He's insinuating that God is holding back the best stuff for himself. That he's holding back the really good stuff from humanity. That he wants to keep something from Adam and Eve that would make them better. Make them greater. Make them like him. Satan's very question is a lie. Do you notice that? Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? Of course he didn't. He said don't eat from one. Even the question is a lie. 
It takes a really tricky person to word a question in such a way that it's a lie. Uh, you've probably seen some examples if you watch the news and politics lately. <laughs> His very question is a lie. Now, Eve doesn't make it any better for herself. We're not letting anybody off the hook in this story. Adam's at fault, Eve's at fault, Satan's at fault. Eve doesn't make it any better for herself. Rather than saying, no, God said we're not allowed to eat from just one, all the others are ours, she actually adds to God's rules. She says, we're not allowed to eat from the tree or even touch it, or else we'll die. Now, did God actually say that? Did God actually say, if you touch it, you will die? Go back and reread the Genesis account. When God says, don't eat from the one tree, that's all he says. Don't eat from it. Doesn't say you can't decorate with it. Doesn't say you can't touch it. Doesn't say you can't use it to throw. Doesn't say you can't do whatever else. He just says, don't eat it. Or else you will surely know death. Guys, this is what's called legalism. This is what's called legalism. Whenever we add to God's word, we're being legalistic. Do not add to or subtract from God's word. God's word is the way it is for a reason. God has given it to us in the way he has for a reason. God has given us great freedom in the law. Now, as much as there's restriction and rules there, there's great freedom in it that we are to enjoy the things that he has created within the bounds that he has set up. He wanted Adam and Eve to enjoy the fullness of that garden. He just didn't want them to taste death. So he gave them a restriction, but great freedom. Don't impose more restriction than God does. Don't try to be more holy than God, because at the heart of that is one of the greatest sins that uh, several uh, theologians throughout history have said all sin is, uh, is the product of hubris. Pride. Setting ourselves up thinking we can be more holy than God. Don't do that. Legalism. Don't add to his word. God clearly said what he meant to say. Adding to his rules also implies that God is dumb. That God didn't add all the things that he should have. He, he missed something, so we'll just fix it for God. No. God said what he intended to say in the way that he intended to say it. He didn't say don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. So many problems today come from trying to add to the word of God. Huge divisions and heresies have popped up in the church over the years. Because rather than looking at something that God gave us as a blessing, we look at it and say, oh, well, somebody could use that for evil. So we've got to say, you can't do that and be a Christian. We've got to say, well, we've got to add all these rules and restrictions. We've got to add clarifications. We've got to add justifications. We've got to add all these little addendums to make sure that nobody abuses that good gift of God. How dare we think that we're more holy than God and that we know better than he does. If God allows something, we allow it. If God forbids something, we forbid it. In our particular branch and denomination of the church, in the, uh, the uh, Christian church, Church of Christ, we've always had this statement that where scripture speaks, we speak. Where scripture is silent, we're silent. I think that's a great philosophy, don't you? We don't get to make extra rules. 
even as extra layers of protection. Eve had a good thing in mind, I'm sure, when she said, we're not supposed to touch it. I don't think that she intended evil. I really don't. I think she was just, we're just going to stay away from that. It's a good thing at the heart of it, right? Stay away from sin. But when you start saying, that's what God said to do, instead of, that's what we're going to do, because we don't want even the proximity to what might cause us to sin. When you start saying, that's what God said, and you have to do it. That's what we have to do. If you don't do that my way, then you're not a real Christian. We're sinning. So Adam and Eve, they don't call Satan out on his first lie. Instead, they contribute to it in their own way. And they contribute to their own downfall with their legalism and the treatment of the fruit. Now, Satan sees an opportunity. Satan is an opportunist at heart. Anytime he sees an opening, he's going to take it. And he says, you'll not surely die. And he takes some of the fruit and he eats it. And he doesn't die. Satan tells another lie. Even though on the surface it seems like truth. And it may even be wrapped in truth, but it's still a lie at the core. It's kind of like, have you ever pranked somebody at Halloween time by taking an onion and dipping it in caramel and giving it to them? It's a really fun prank. I know I'm mean, I know. But if you really want to get somebody... Take an onion, dip it in caramel, set it out with some caramel apples, be like, oh, caramel apples, mmm. Yeah, it's a nasty surprise. <laughs> I know, I'm mean. But that's the picture that we see, that on the inside is the lie. It's not really an apple at the core. It's surrounded in caramel. There's the truth that it's a caramel something. But it's not an apple. That's how Satan likes to operate. He likes to hide a lie with a little tiny bit of truth. And the truth was that he didn't die immediately when he ate the fruit. Why? Because he already knew about death. He had already tasted good and evil when he rebelled against God. And the death ultimately that the disobedience brought wasn't physical, it was spiritual. That's ultimately what inflicted and uh, afflicted our world was the spiritual aspect of the disobedience. It wasn't really even the fruit. It was the act of eating that which God said don't eat. It was a spiritual reality that affected our physical one. So of course he didn't die immediately. He didn't drop dead. Wouldn't it be nice if sin was like that though? Like, like we knew that something was bad because, hey, he did that and then he just dropped over dead. Let's not do that. <laughs> you know, like, like somebody just does something and immediately they experience the consequences. We would all learn pretty quickly, right? Like, we don't do that because you die. <laughs> but that's not how sin works. When we sin, we don't just drop dead most of the time. Now, certainly there are some things that they end that way, but very few, very few. There are so few sins that you drop dead doing it once. Most of the time, the death that comes is slow. It's spiritual. It's delayed. So Satan doesn't drop dead. He implies with his action, with his lie, that God is lying. That God is not to be trusted. He says, look at me, I'm not dead. God knows you're not going to die. He lies. 
calls into question God's goodness and trustworthiness. He says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. He knows when you eat of it that your eyes are going to be opened, that you're going to be like God. And God doesn't want that. God can't be trusted. Now, what's the lie in that? The lie is such a tragic one. The lie is that we had already been made like God. We had been made in his image and likeness. Genesis tells us that when God made mankind, he said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We had already experienced some of the very attributes of God. Not all, because we're not God. But he had shared a little bit of himself with us in making us. It's amazing. The lie was, God doesn't want you to be like him. We had already been made like him. The lies are so deep and insidious in such a short statement that I could write a book unpacking all of that and its implications, but for the sake of time, let's summarize. He says, God isn't trustworthy. He says, God's a liar. God's holding back the best from you. God doesn't want you to be like him, but it's all lies. Yes, the fruit from the tree was not physical poison. They weren't going to just drop over dead from eating it. But they would die spiritually, little by little. In that moment when Adam and Eve take and eat of the fruit, they begin to die spiritually. Now, people make too much of the fruit sometimes. I think it's really the action that is important, that they disobey, they rebel against God. And now they know both good and evil, not simply as an idea. It's one thing to conceptualize of good and evil. It's a whole other thing to be able to practice both. See, God knows good and evil as a concept because he is good and he understands evil. But he is not evil. He is not a practicer of evil. Now suddenly, Adam and Eve knew in practice what evil was. And we have such a poor definition of evil in the church nowadays. I've told you it before, I'll tell you it again because it's worth knowing. Evil isn't Hitler, it isn't Stalin. They're evil, but it's not them. Evil is simply this. It is anything that is contrary to God's word, God's will, and God's way. Think about that for a second how we are all guilty of evil because we have done that which is contrary to God's word, God's will, and God's way. They knew good and evil firsthand. They had believed the lie that God is not trustworthy, but God is trustworthy. God had not lied. Did you know that the Bible tells us God cannot lie? Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, literally, God cannot lie. It's contrary to his very nature. Somebody can't do something that's contrary to their nature, to who they really are. And God is truth. He is the source of all truth. Furthermore, God wasn't afraid of sharing his likeness. I told you, we were made in his image and likeness. Satan's a liar. He lies at every turn. Says you can't trust God. And here's the really scary thing about this lie. It's powerful. 
It's potent. It's dangerous. I told you last week, we do such a disservice to our young people in the church producing t-shirts that say, Satan is stupid. Satan's dumb. No, Satan's not stupid and he's not dumb. He's very intelligent. He's very crafty. He's very smart. He's just evil. He knows how to get to you. He knows how to lie to you. He knows how to tempt you. And here's the really interesting thing. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus, he uses the same lie that he used on Adam and Eve. God can't be trusted. Isn't that weird? That here we have God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And Satan comes to him and says, the father can't be trusted. Powerful enough lie that when the most important moment in Satan's existence comes, when the moment where he is face to face with his creator and he's trying to deceive and tempt him, he uses the exact same one he used on our first parents. Interesting. Satan uses the same tactic because he's not a moron. He is very smart. Let's take a look at these tactics and how he uses this specifically in this instance of Jesus' temptation. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit uh, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Duh. Duh was added by me. That's not the Bible. I'm just kidding. There's probably something like that in the Greek. I don't know. I'm just playing. And the tempter came and said to him, uh, lost my place. Uh, the tempter came and said to him, uh, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Interesting. Jesus, God the son, is fasting. Why? Because he was led by the spirit to do so. We need to remember that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And when he walks amongst us as a man, he does the work of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in his physical body. He does it in obedience to the Father. He does, he, he does this not only showing us how we should behave, but also doing what we uh, cannot do ourselves. He is the more perfect Adam, as we know from the text. So when the Holy Spirit comes to Jesus and says, go to the wilderness, go fast, he does so. He obeys. I know that's kind of weird. I know that's really a bizarre moment to try to wrap your brain around. Believe me, I've been trying to do that for many years. Still can't get my head all the way around the concept of Trinity, but I think it proves that God's real. God is commanding God, saying, go fast. So Jesus does. He goes and he fasts. How long? 40 days and 40 nights. And then the Bible says one of the most blatantly obvious statements of all time. He was hungry. Yeah, I'm sure he was. I get hungry after a day. Okay? I can't imagine trying to go 40 days without food. Okay? I get hangry whenever it's been like more than 12 hours without food. Anybody else get hangry? If you don't know what hangry is, it's hungry and angry. And mostly angry because you're hungry. Okay? Hangry. I like that word. 
get hangry sometimes. I can't imagine going 40 days without food, but I have read a little bit about fasting, haven't so much experienced it, because get hangry. But I've read a lot about it, and one of the things that I read about fasting is that after a while of fasting, your body will actually stop being hungry. Now, Again, I don't know it from personal experience, but reading these accounts, people stopped getting hungry after a bit because their minds, their bodies, worked to create that illusion that they weren't hungry anymore, even though their body needed sustenance. Okay? And it works for a while. The trick works. Your body can be tricked for a time into thinking you're not really hungry when you are. But eventually, your body catches up with you. Your metabolism catches up with all of that, and you start getting hungry again. Now, here's the interesting part. When you start getting hungry again, we've learned that the body is actually starting to die. That your body is actually starting to shut down. Certain systems are starting to shut down when you get hungry again. And for those reading this during the time period, for those reading this in the first and second century, they would have known from practical experience that when you start getting hungry again, you need to go eat. Okay? 40 days and 40 nights is kind of pushing it when it comes to fasting. You need to go eat. Okay? When you start getting to that, you're hungry again, you go eat. And yet Jesus hadn't. Why? Because the Spirit had not commanded him to go eat yet. The Spirit hadn't commanded him to go eat yet. It's going to be important in just a few minutes. So he didn't. He didn't go eat. Satan shows up and he says, I know you're hungry. I got some lovely stones over here that could become bread in no time if you just commanded it. And the lie at the center of it is that the Father is not good because if the Father really loved you, Jesus, he wouldn't let you starve to death out here. I know you're hungry. I know your stomach is really starting to make some noises and you're getting to that point. You're dying, Jesus. You're dying because the Father doesn't really care about you. If he did, he wouldn't let you starve. Not out here, not in the wilderness. He wouldn't let you die by yourself. You can't trust the Father. Interesting, isn't it? Same lie wrapped a little bit differently, but the same lie nevertheless. But Jesus isn't fooled. He knows the Father has not abandoned him. He knows that he's supposed to wait for instruction and wait for food. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone. He lives on the word of God. And here's how powerful the lie again is, that God can't be trusted. Satan doesn't change tactics. He presents the lie a different way. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. The devil, uh, took, uh, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan takes Jesus up 
to the top of the temple and he says, If the Father is so good, if you can really trust God, then you're not going to have a problem with this little itty-bitty experiment. You're not going to have a problem with this little test for God. Just jump off. It's simple. You don't even have to snap your fingers and make bread. All you got to do for this one is take a step forward. Right into the middle of the air. And if the Father's really trustworthy, he's going to catch you. And Satan does something really devious to try to convince Jesus of the lie. He quotes scripture. Interesting, isn't it? He quotes scripture at Jesus. Now, here's what's really funny. In all the horror movies and all the terrible stuff that happens in our country with personifying and, and, and fictionalizing Satan, we have done a great disservice to our children. They do not have an accurate picture of Satan and demons. They think that from the movies, you read scripture, Satan flees. I've met a lot of Christians from charismatic movements that they think all you have to do is read the Bible out loud. Satan can't stand it. He's got to run. No, he doesn't have to run. He knows the Bible backwards, forwards, upside down, inside out, every which way. He knows the Bible, and he quotes it, trying to use it against Jesus. He says, it's written. Here's the funny thing. He's quoting scripture to the author of scripture. Did you ever think about that? God, the author and inspirer of the scriptures, is being quoted scripture at. Why? Why does Satan try to take this tactic? Well, he knows the Bible, and he knows that if he lies and he twists it just right, it can be very convincing. And it's been used quite successfully over the years to lead many people astray. So many people taking things out of context have believed absolute lies. Guys, when we study scripture, do your due diligence. Read the whole passage. Read the whole chapter. Read the whole book. Get the full context. Get a good study Bible and do your due diligence. Don't just take one verse out of context or you'll end up like the little calendar that I showed you a picture of a few months back that it said, if you will just pray and kneel before me, I will give you all that you see. Do you know where that passage came from? This text. Satan was saying it. From the next passage down, if you will just kneel before me, I'll give you everything that you see. Guys, context is important. You remember when we were doing our interpretation uh, toolbox that had all our different tools for interpreting the Bible? The biggest one I told you, and I repeated it three different days, context is king. You must know context. Or Satan will twist scripture and use it against you. Jesus isn't fooled. He says, you're not supposed to test God. You trust that God is good because he's proven it over and over again. Do not test the Lord your God. Despite changing the way that he said it, Satan uses the same lie. Jesus fires right back at him. He knows. But Satan isn't done just yet. No, he comes at Jesus a third time with the same lie. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 10 says this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan says, you actually trust the Father? You trust his plan to give you all authority and all dominion over heaven and earth? You really trust that he's going to do that for you when he's got a plan for you to die? Really? That doesn't seem trustworthy to me, Jesus. I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you everything that you see right here, right now. Every single thing. It's kind of like that scene in The Lion King. You remember with Simba and Mufasa? And he's like, he's like, you know, everything that the light touches, that's our kingdom. All of it will be yours one day. Satan saying, all this and more can be yours right now. He's like the world's most devious television salesman for those terrible products that you really don't want or need. And it's just one more thing to clutter your kitchen. All this can be yours for three easy payments of $19.99 plus shipping and handling, which is $59.99. But don't worry about that because they're awesome products that you really want and you can't live without. Everything can be yours. All I need from you, Jesus, is a little worship. so very devious, isn't it? God can't be trusted. The Father doesn't really care about you. He left you out here to die. He left you in the wilderness to forget about you. He's not going to give you anything. I could give you everything. I could give you all that your heart desires if you'll just worship because I can be trusted. I'm good to my word. same old lie. Repackaged, recoded in a different type of caramel, but a lie. Nevertheless, the same old song and dance. God's not trustworthy. You can't trust him, but you can trust me. I'm looking out for your best. Friends, make no mistake. We have an enemy who is real, and who hates us. He is our greatest adversary, and he will come at you with anything that he thinks he will succeed with. But most often, most often at the core of his lie that he will come at you with is that God can't be trusted, that God's not really good, he doesn't really love you, and he doesn't have your best in mind. Guys, don't believe the lie. Jesus himself said, there's only one who's good, and that's God. There is only one who's good. It's God. And God has shown us his love 
in the most profound ways. He has shown us that he's good and that he's trustworthy. Not only has God kept all the promises that he's made throughout scripture, throughout history, but he personified love in the greatest way. He showed us that we can trust him in the greatest way imaginable. Through Jesus himself dying on the cross and then coming back. He has illustrated his trust on that cross. That he is honest and that he is trustworthy because think about that for a second. How unbelievable is it that someone would say, I'm going to die and then I'm going to come back three days later. And yet he did. He kept his word even from beyond the grave. He conquers the grave and comes back. It's powerful. And all throughout scripture, God makes this powerful claim that he loves us, that he doesn't want us to die. In Ezekiel, we're outright told, for I desire no one to die, repent and live. And he's shown us that this is true by making a way that we do not have to die. We don't have to die spiritually, and we can come back from the dead physically. We're told that we can receive physical resurrection through Jesus, through what he accomplishes on the cross and afterwards. People may try to win your trust in all kinds of different ways, through all kinds of different acts of affection, through trying to buy you off, trying to make you promises, whatever. But very rarely will anybody die to show you that they're trustworthy. Jesus did, though. And you need to understand that this is how much God loves you. That he has literally said, you're going to hell with Satan over my dead body. You're going with Satan to hell over my dead body. And every single person who has gone to hell or will go to hell from this point on in the future does so over Jesus' dead body. Jesus dies and resurrects so that you don't have to die and go to hell. He does it so that you can receive life, true life, real life. Not just life here and now, but life then and there in a world that's coming, a new world where heaven and earth meet again as they once did in the Garden of Eden where God and man walked together. There was no shroud, no veil, no barrier between God and man. what we look forward to. That's what we've been promised. There is no person that you could have more reassurance in, that you can trust more than Jesus himself. And here is my question to you today. Will you trust him? Will you trust God? Will you trust in Jesus, his son? Today, we're going to have a chance, if you've not done that in your life, We're going to have a time of decision that if you have not trusted Jesus as Lord, if you have not submitted your life to him, this is your moment 
don't miss it. Trust him. If you're ready to do that this morning, why don't you come find me as we stand and as we sing together. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.